Hey guys, it's Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, before we get started, I want to let you know that www.thingspolicey.com is now officially up and running. I'm super excited for you to check it out. It looks amazing. Um, I can take zero credit for it. Daniel Jerkowitz from Bump It Marketing. He was a former guest from New York. Um, kind of just, I think I mentioned it before, he just volunteered to build this website for me so that the show could have a kind of a, a central meeting place. Um, and I'm just so grateful that the thing is awesome. Now, if you, if you want to be a guest, you go to the website, thingspolicey.com and you can send me a message to be a guest Just click on, um, be a guest for the show. If you want to join the newsletter, I encourage you to do that. You can do that there. If you want to listen to the podcast, you can do that there. And also, if you feel so inclined, you can support the podcast and um, make a donation. And I put that on there because the podcast is a lot of work. We put a lot of time into the podcast between scheduling, interviewing, editing, publishing the episodes. Uh, it just takes a lot of time. We enjoy it, but it's uh, it's taxing. And also, um, invested uh, a good amount of money in equipment, so... You know, I'm not looking to to make a mint on this. If I would be so pleased if enough people just appreciated the show and thought it was worth something that I was able to um, pay off the equipment or just pay our our monthly um, podcast bills. You know, just the uh, you know little fees that are associated with uh, running a podcast and keeping it up. That would be totally amazing. And I have to say, don't donate. Um, unless you really love the show, if you really love the show and you really appreciate it, um, that's awesome. And I love the support. That's great. Don't feel like you need to, cause you don't. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing the way there's so much free content now and you don't have to pay for it. And I consume plenty of it myself. I do, however, contribute when I'm so moved to by something that I really enjoy. Um, and that's always there for me. I, I, I will put money towards something like that. And that's what I'm counting on. If you if you really like the show and you're moved to do it, totally appreciated. You don't have to. Gonna keep doing the show anyways. The option is there. So that's on the website, thingspolicey.com. You can do all that there. I'm so happy to have this thing up and going. It looks beautiful. There's also an about page on there. It tells a little about um, how the podcast got started and a little bit about uh, Ken and I. So if you uh, want to go by and check that out and give your email for the newsletter. That would be fantastic. I'd appreciate it. Um, all right. So, and, uh, and as always, you can contact me at steve at thingspolicey.com. That is the fancy pantsy email address you get to use when you have a website. So we've been uh, building it for the last couple of weeks. Now it's done and it's all, uh, it's all shiny and new. So please go check it out. Without further ado, here's episode number 34. This is Things Police See, First Hand Accounts, with your host, Steve Gold. Hey guys, it's Steve. Welcome to the podcast. With me as always is Ken Roybal. Ken, good morning. Good morning to you from wet and soggy Washington State. Yes, yes. It's actually wet and soggy in Southern California as well. Uh, I'm in the high desert, so 
They didn't tell me when I moved up here. It's a lot like, uh, it's not much different than New England up here. It's a little chilly. Oh. I got, uh, we have flood warnings out here because the rivers sometimes overflow. We're in an area that we won't get flooded, but the roads that could go into town could be flooded. Um, but I got this uh, property I have. I have a big swath of land right in the front. I can easily build an ark. So just, just call me <laughs> Noah. I'll take oh, man. It's, yeah, we're getting slammed out here with, uh, with rain. But I, I love it. I, I think it's the greatest thing ever. No, your property is beautiful. I've seen many pictures, and it looks uh, absolutely amazing. That's a goal of my wife and I's is to make our way to the Pacific Northwest at some point before we are deed. Ah, and we'll your probably, kindness is appreciated. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, impose on you, of course. Uh, and today we have one of your uh, someone from your alma mater, LAPD, twenty year veteran, Andrew Gonzalez, and he's uh, he's also worked gangs a long time, so. I'm really excited to talk to him. I don't know a lot about gangs. I know I've been in probably been in danger from gangs a few times and probably didn't even know it. But I can't wait to pick his brain. And I'm sure. Um, I mean, you have the inside track. You're a you're a vet yourself of LAPD. Yeah, this will be cool. I mean, just talking shop with uh, with some of the LAPD guys. That'll be kind of cool. I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And did you you worked at Southwest for a while, didn't you? Or the 77th? Is that what they call it? No, I worked at Newton and Newton. Uh, Wilshire, which uh, shoot uh, both Newton. of those shoot Newton, uh, both uh, Newton and Wilshire, uh, the south and east uh, or uh, west ends, uh, both butt up against Southwest. Aha! Uh-huh. I know when we worked backgrounds together. If I got a candidate that was south of Los Angeles, I would immediately take it to my <laughs> to my neighboring um, LAPD uh, buddy, or I would take it over to you if my um, people near me weren't around and say, uh, is this safe? <laughs> Can, what should it, I well, do? Interesting enough, I, I had a call that was uh, in an area down by La Brea and, and Rodeo, which is uh, an intersection there right in Southwest. It's actually, it used to be where the, the divisions, uh, the borders of divisions for Wilshire and and uh, Southwest were, and so half, you know, across the street was Wilshire, and across the street was Southwest. And when I was working backgrounds, I recall that area very specifically. They, they, um, it's a very bad area. Anyways, so I called the watch commander because I would call the watch commander of different areas and go, "Hey, um, what do you, what do you think about this area as a background investigator? You think I, uh, you know, what?" Should I take someone with me? And I called the Southwest background investigator because I had a call right in the corner of La Brea and Rodeo. And he just flat out said, he goes, don't go. (laughs) (laughs) So so I just put in my report per the watch commander advised not to go to this area. And, you know, backgrounds takes it because there's some areas in, I mean, there's a lot of areas all of Southwest that you, if you're a gang officer, you work Southwest patrol, you know, that's just a, that's a very hotbed of uh, murders and drugs and gangs. And it's it's just a really hopping uh, division. Yeah. Yeah. I remember mailing in a few, um, mailing a few uh, questionnaires to neighborhoods in that area. It's, you know, it's not good when you're walking down the sidewalk and there's like guys who are 30 and 40 years old, just playing cards on the sidewalk in front yard at like, you know, noon. (laughs) It's like, uh, yeah, no job, huh? (laughs) You know, I could, I could pass as somebody, you know, somebody from building inspection but you you're a a, a kind of a pasty white ginger guy and you're not going to fit in at all man over there so yeah i wouldn't go if i was you either yeah there's no um i couldn't even pose as like a 
predominant white gang member because I'm not sure there is any white gangs in LA. <laughs> yeah, you could have you could have put a little nameplate on and wear a white shirt and just say you're Elder Gould, you know, or something like that. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's not. Huh? I said that's what everybody used to say. They said they either think you're a Bible <laughs> salesman or you're a cop. <laughs> yeah. Mormon, Mormon elder going down there. Those are that's the only reason you'd be down there. So, but uh, yeah, I'm excited. All right, my man. Let's uh, let's dial this guy in. All right. Let's see. Andrew Gonzalez, LAPD. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. Thank you very much for asking. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for coming on. Uh, with me is Ken Roybal. He's from your alma mater, uh, retired LAPD. Uh-huh. Yeah, good morning, Andrew. Good to meet you. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, man. It's uh, like I was telling Steve. I'm up here in Washington State. I'm looking out my window, and we've been getting drenched. So, I'm just I'm just uh, all uh, in my sweater, and it's warm. And I'm looking out the window, and it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous day out here. I bet I miss those days. I grew up in New York, and I I, I miss the snow and the changing of the the colors of the leaves during during the uh, uh, during the October months and September. It's I miss that, but. Um, you know, in California, we pay for the weather, so yeah, I like that out here too. It's amazing, man. You moved out. You moved all the way out here just to just to work gangs. No, I I actually I left home when I was seventeen. Um, my dad signed some paperwork and shipped me off to to boot camp. I, so I joined the Marine Corps when I was seventeen. Wow. Um, that was more of a social safety net for me, but I'm glad I did it. And I spent almost eight years in, in the Marine Corps and then um, and then transitioned right into the LAPD in um, in January of 2000. That's awesome, man. And what do you um, – how many years do you have on? It's 20, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be hitting 20 uh, uh, in January. And that's in the 77th, right? So I worked 77th for on and off for about 16 years. I worked a gang unit there twice. I worked uh, gang detectives there. I worked narcotics there. And then I worked down in as far south of LA as you can go, down to San Pedro, down at Harbor. I worked gang, uniform gangs there. And then uh, gang detectives. I left. I worked... Um, for a, a task force, a human trafficking task force, um, specifically developed to target gang members that were trafficking uh, multiple adult victims or minor victims. And then I I came back to the harbor, and I'm, I'm part of the gang impact team, uh, gang detectives in the harbor now. Wow, man. Can you describe to the, the listeners um, what gang, like what the gang scene is like in Los Angeles? There's I think a lot of people know there's a lot of gangs, but they don't understand like just how big it is. It is it it is pretty big. I mean, I have to be honest with you. Um, the the culture has evolved. I mean, as with any culture, there's a new evolution that takes place. That goes without saying, you know. Um, I think you know it's fair to say that a lot of their activity, because of social media and because of cell phones and because of you know, encrypted uh, communication um, applications. A lot of their stuff has become a little bit more clandestine, and so you don't you don't see them out there like you used to 20 years ago or even 15 years ago. And I think Ken can attest to that, where it it, it would not be uncommon for you to see guys hanging out in front of an apartment complex or on a corner, you know, dressed down or, or groups of gang members. 
you know, congregating in certain geographical areas of the division. But, you know, it's they're still out there. They're still super active. Um, they still, I think, in my opinion, you know, still have a stranglehold on, on the community. But they're a little bit harder to see, you know, because of evolution. Yeah, I know. They, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Steve. What I was going to say was that uh, when we were in backgrounds, uh, Steve and I would see where the gang members were getting kind of sophisticated in their communications and social media and stuff. And you would actually think these guys were businessmen the way they were presenting themselves. But it's a very um, uh, there's a very dark area uh, in in gangs where they actually utilize social media to their advantage and make it look like they're actually legitimate folks. But they're really they're really gang members. Yeah, and I think I think um, and forgive me, Steve, I don't know if you wanted to interject there. Um, no, go ahead. But, but um, you know, we don't we don't give them enough credit. I mean, listen, you got to give credit where it's due. And if you think that we're dealing with just, you know, a bunch of a bunch of guys who aren't as sophisticated as, you know, some, you know, top tier, you know, executives, you know, managing big companies, mm-hmm. you're, you're mistaken because. There are a lot of smart guys in there, you know, and and remember, this criminal enterprise has been going on as long as, you know, you know, we can find records of it. You know, this is not, you know, for the for the most part, they run it just like a company. They run it just like Mm -hmm. a military organization. And within that, you have factions and within those factions, you have you have people that are good at certain things. And there are people who are who are good at, you know, social media, people who are good at white collar crime, people who are good at you know, creating these fake identities on social media. You have people that are good talkers. You have, and then you have, you know, the population of, of those gangs, the, those members who are just, who are just really violent and who are capable of some pretty heinous things. So, you know, I mean, as again, with evolution, you know, you become smarter, you, you adapt and you overcome, you know, as, as an agency, as the, as police do, but so do gangs and so do those those members you know they they adapt and they overcome as well you know andrew i'd like to pose a question um so i'm white guy orange hair um <laughs> and hair. i'm really curious i think people wonder this they think like how much danger am i really in if i go to south central and say uh-huh. i have to knock on doors for a background or or my job now as an insurance investigator i need to try to get video or i need to try to talk to some, you know, street person that supposedly witnessed a, uh, an accident, whatever, how much yeah. danger am I really in? Like, are, like you said, they're, they're tempering themselves publicly a little bit. And I'm sure the business, the business minded gang members don't want attention drawn, but there are yeah. those members that are ultra violent that, um, you know, that, that lash out and are, you know, maybe crazy. Um, how dangerous is it for me as just a a kind of unaware Northeast guy who moved here four years ago, walking into cell central and banging on doors? You know, good question. And I have to be very careful with how I answer that because, um, the, the energy I would say, or the, um, you know, how can I answer this without sounding like a complete idiot? Um, I, you know, Steve, I gotta be honest with you. Hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people every day travel through South L.A., right? Nothing bad happens. Um, 
I would say that the people who commit those violent crimes make up less than 1% of the population who live in South LA. South LA is primarily comprised of good, hardworking people. And and I know this goes without saying, Ken knows, I mean, you know too, Steve, that most of the people who live in South LA are good, honest, hardworking people. Right. You know, and and those are the people that you run into most of the time, those good, hardworking people. So when people ask me, and they ask me quite often, man, how dangerous is it? I mean, listen, when I was at 77, you know, years ago, I remember a year where we had about 115, 116 murders, you know, and that's the division that actually covers, you know, you know, that you can occupy about nine and a half square miles, right? And my numbers might be wrong, plus or minus, you know, maybe, you know, 10 or, or 20, but it's hard to answer that question. I would say that most people can travel through and conduct business and live a pretty worry-free life um, without being victimized. I would say that would be the norm, right? But That's what I found. I mean, honestly, because I did do just what I described yeah. For a while, and I'm, you know, not from being being from here. It's, it was always in the back of my mind, like I would be so easy to 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 be screwed with. You know what I mean? I obviously don't look like I'm from the neighborhood. Someone could yeah. even like an 18 year old kid could could shout at me, and I'd probably be like, "Whoa, you know, <laughs> what do I do?" Yeah. Yeah. Um, that never happened. And if, like I was saying to Ken before, um, before we brought you in. I did witness people playing like 30 and 40 year old guys, like playing cards and stuff on front lawns and once yeah. in a while. And I just went, walked on the other side of the street and yeah. if they said anything or whatever, just kept my head down. Nothing ever happened, you know? Yeah. yeah and there's a big difference between the daytime and nighttime as well. I mean, I wouldn't suggest you go walk in the street with your dog at night in Southwest or 77th or Newton or any of those places. That's just the way it is. You know, crime elevates during the evening. There was a, I remember back in the 80s, uh, I think it was 1980, I was working a, a report car in Newton during the daytime. And I and in this area where it just wasn't frequented by white people, and there's this guy, he looked like he was 19, 20 years old. Anyways, he comes down the street on a, on a bicycle, a white kid. So pri before there was this racial profiling, I racial profiled this white kid. And I stopped him. I said, the reason I stopped you is because you're white in this area. Because it, it's just, and it turns out, he goes, yeah, oh, no, man, I'm just going to uh, to the uh, Rolling Stones concert over here in Southwest, which is, uh, what was the, the area? I, I forget the arena over there. But anyways, I stopped him for being white in Newton. And then a couple of years ago, I did a background on this guy from, like, I think it was in North Dakota or something like that. Kind of lanky, um not very street smart, super, super intelligent, but not very street smart white kid from, I think, North Dakota or something like that. Anyways, he tells me, I said, you know, have you ever been a victim of a crime? Yeah, I was a victim of a crime over here in this area. And then he, he starts to describe this area in Southwest. I, no, I think it's 77th. Is that where Watts Towers is? No, that's, that, that's in Southeast Division. So Southeast Division. He says, yeah, I, was a, I went to go see Watts Towers and I got robbed in the daytime. This guy gets robbed. And I just want to look at him and go, Dude, you cannot be going to these areas and be white. When that changes, you go and visit. But no. So to answer your question, Steve, Andrew, I don't have to be politically correct because I'm retired. But right. yeah, there's the answer to your question, Steve. Don't be hanging around there <laughs> being white all the time, especially with red hair, you know? So. Well, there goes my weekend plans. I'm going to have to cancel them. Yeah. 
I'm telling you, it's it's a it's. Listen, man. The the people that live there are good people. I, I think. No, I mean, nobody here is disputing that. You know what I mean? And I think that we can all agree that the, the violent population or the criminal element makes up a very, very, very small population of those people. You know what I mean? And and to say that you know violent crimes or crimes that are committed by gang members or or, or motivated uh, because of race. I mean, it's it's super, super. Like there's little evidence to show or to prove that, you know, whites or Asians are being targeted simply because they're white or Asian. Now, the black and brown thing, I mean, that's been going on for a long time. You know, Ken, you know that, you know, right, black right. gangs and Hispanic gangs, you know, black peace stones and, and 18th Street and stuff like that. But and that dates back to even before I came on the job. But there's very little evidence to show that any any crimes committed against um, whites or, or, or Asians or any other race for that matter are motivated simply because of race. I mean, it, it's it's a criminal element. It's a criminal enterprise that that really thrives on yeah, money, you know, uh, obtaining money, obtaining assets, victimizing people. But I mean, you know, I, I I would I would have more reservation walking through tough neighborhoods, whether they be in Santa Ana or Oceanside or San Diego or L.A. Because I'm Hispanic, shaved head with tattoos, you know. I, I live in a southeast city, and I and I don't leave my house unless I wear a hat. You know what I mean? Um, but it's there. It's 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 an environment that we have to live in. It's 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 um, it's an organization that exists, and you kind of have to live around it. You know what I mean, Ken? Yeah, and and uh, and to, to for everybody listening, it's not it's not that the area itself is is going to, you know, they're not going to attack white people. What I'm saying is that yeah. uh, there's a lot of great people. The majority of people in all these divisions are just awesome, wonderful, and they and they support the police a lot. But you don't hear that in the news. True. And there's a lot of business people of all different races and and colors that uh, that work in uh, in these areas. Um, and it's just. Um, it's just it's terrible what you hear in the news, and so it kind of paints a, a picture of all this. But everybody, generally speaking, uh, th the crimes that are committed are are mostly property crimes, and the the very violent crimes that you read about in the news or hear on the on the news are people of color against people of color, and yeah. that's that's where the issue. So I you know. To preface, to preface that, it's not white people. You can't go down these areas because if you're white, you're going to get attacked. It's not like that. It's just that, um, you know, and answer your question, Steve. But uh, overall, these areas just have regular people just like anywhere else. Yeah, that's – um, and I never felt like when I, when I go to these places, because I still do, I never felt like it would be racially motivated towards me because I'm white. I just think it's, it's an attribute that immediately identifies me as not from the neighborhood. You know what I mean? So they're right away – I always feel like, you know, they probably have some kind of, um, if you're from the neighborhood, you're probably okay. But if you're like, if they can tell you're an outsider, maybe not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah you I, know what's I, interesting oh, good. is that Go that's, that's actually quite the, the opposite. That's, if, if you're an outsider, there's more reservation in dealing with you because I've interviewed you know, gang members, a lot of them, and not only gang members, but people who commit crime, you know, there's a lot of reservation dealing with people who are not from the neighborhood, people who are obviously from a different, you know, um, geographic 
geographical area, geographic area. Really? That's interesting. It, yeah. You know, if you're from the neighborhood, right, let's say, let's say if, um, if I, if I'm part of a gang that occupies a certain territory and I see another male Hispanic who is obviously easily identifiable as, as a gang member, but he's, he's from my area, but not my neighborhood, th there's going to be issues. You know what I mean? Mm. If, if I'm, you know, if I'm a, a gangster and I see, you know, Pepsi delivery guy, I'm not going to say anything to him. Or if I see insurance guy knocking door to door, I'm not going to say anything to him. He's right. not in my world. Does that make sense? He's not. Right, right. Totally. World. You know, he's not, he doesn't pose, you know, a danger to me. He doesn't, he doesn't threaten me at all. You, you know what I mean? That um, totally makes sense. And, and it's, you know, it's just like in the whole police world, you know, you, you'll see that when police gather at certain functions, there's this posturing that takes place, you know, there's like, you know, who's, who's more of the tough guy. And, and that transcends profession and transcends, you know, geographic area. That's just part of human nature. And unfortunately, most, mostly happens, you know, when men congregate and get together, there's this posturing and it happens out in police departments and it happens out in the street. You know what I mean? So it's most of the time when people don't see someone as being a, an immediate threat that they just kind of don't even acknowledge their presence. So, it's like if you're, you know, if you're Steve Gould and you're, you know, doing background investigations, you know, walking down, you know, Florence and, and Crenshaw, nobody's going to say anything to you. I mean, honestly, they, the likelihood of anybody approaching you is pretty slim. Yeah, there's not a lot of predatory behavior just in general. Right. And I think where we get all this, uh, these reactions is just from the news media and movies, a lot in movies and TV where they, you know, it's, uh, it's just prevalent in that in that kind of environment that's what all people that's all people see yeah it's fascinating to me. good point yeah good point with the with the media and the movies i mean seldom do you see you know the good you know hard-working immigrant who you know who's building a business or who's raising a very conservative you know god-fearing family who's trying to do the right thing you know you you never see that depicted in film because it's not exciting to watch you know and so the things that are exciting some sometimes they influence our our perspective on how we see certain people who live in these certain areas you know it's it's a shame honestly yeah especially when you're thinking about your own safety you know you're going to correct your own mind brings everything to the 10th degree you know so anything you've ever seen about that area you're going to be like well that's going to happen to me like <laughs> go there yeah <laughs> yeah, I think it's more of a I think it's more of a, a discomfort in being in an environment that you're not familiar with or that you don't fit like Steve was saying. I, I think that uh, if, if I went to an, an area maybe in the deep south where there's Confederate yeah. flags and, and all this kind of stuff and I didn't fit in and I might make myself feel uncomfortable um, as opposed to the people making me feel uncomfortable. I mean, nobody can say anything to you and you're going to feel uncomfortable. That's just you. I don't think that the people generally do things <clears throat> do things that are overt that make you feel like unsafe and things like I don't think it's like that. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I was thinking about that when you mentioned it. You know, like if I go down to Alabama, or if I go down to the Deep South, you know, you know, being Hispanic and, you know, I'm a, I'm a veteran man, and and I and I've been a, a police officer for 20 years, and I've I think, you know, I'm gonna get on my high horse here, but I think I've done a lot for my country and my community, and I've made a lot of sacrifice. Absolutely. You know? um, not, not in, you know, also sacrifice in with regard to my emotional state too, man, you know, with the depression and the anxiety and the, and the 
the traumatic stress and and I shouldn't have to feel worried about going to the deep south. You know what I mean? But okay. like you mentioned, it's in the back of my mind because of what I've seen on TV. It's it I I think you're right in that. I, I would make my own self feel uncomfortable without giving anyone from that community a chance to make me feel comfortable, you know? Right, right. So, same thing in LA. Yeah, humans are very, very flawed creatures in that way. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, can you yeah. tell us about the uh, the first hot call you responded to as a, as a rookie cop? Um, yeah, it's tough. You know, it's tough because I was thinking about that and. Some of those things you kind of just put out of your mind. Those things you don't want to remember. Right. You know what I mean? Um, I do remember, you know, being involved in a pursuit of a stolen car that started over there off of Slauson and Fig. And, uh, you know, gangster was driving the stolen car. We didn't know that he had uh, a young girl in the car. And um, he ends up crashing on 130th and Figueroa. What's interesting is that I still drive on Fig, you know, because I live close by, and I still see the building, like like the difference in the color of bricks from where this guy crashed back in 2000. Even still, you know, coming up to 2020, wow. I'm still tricked by it when I see it. And, uh, you know, he ends up crashing and the girl dies. Oh. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that I'm, I'm not mentioning with regards to, you know, my observations of her and, you know, the things that he said and the things that she said before she died. But um, it sucks, man, because often when I'm with my wife and, and I'm with friends, it's like the stories always come back to that, you know? Mm. And then you're like, man, why is everybody so depressed? And they go, you just finished listening to you for an hour. Of course, everybody's going to be, mm. you know, kind of in a somber mood, but. You know, those are the things that I remember because I revisit them, you know, so often in my mind. Andrew, I got a question for you with regard to that now that you're mentioning it. And I know you're going to get into the PTSD later. What are your, after 20 years on the job and being working gangs and all that, working, working in these South End divisions, what would you say is your take on human suffering and the things that people don't see that cops do see how do you how do you view yourself and your how you see these things or how you feel about them 20 years down the road from when you were first a, a, a rookie cop with no facial hair and and to now <laughs> yeah um well i'm hispanic so i had a mustache when i was seven <laughs> excellent no no you know, so, so here's the interesting thing is that I grew up in a really, really bad neighborhood too, right? And so part of me joining the military was, was my dad's attempt to get me out of that, away from that neighborhood, away from those influences, you know, to preserve my life. And, you know, so many of my family members have been victims of violent crime. And so I think that, you know, joining the Marine Corps, as I said earlier, was a social safety net, right? So I was coming from a very traumatic upbringing. And then I entered the military that was was a bit traumatic, you know, I, I got through it. But then when I joined the police department, what, I joined the police department because, and this, is, this may shock a lot of people, but I joined the LAPD because I wanted to be a part of the solution that would bring reform to policing. When, when I was a kid, man, I, I didn't look at the police 
I didn't think too fondly of the police. You know, there was there was a lot of what I perceived and interpreted as injustices, whether they be social or cultural. I couldn't see past, you know, people who look like me, people who were of my same race and ethnicity committing crimes against people who look like me, you know, of the same race and ethnicity. I, I honestly thought that it was the police and, and government holding, you know, a specific demographic down. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I joined the police department to be part of reform. What's interesting, though, is that after the first couple of years on the job, I, I could really see the transformation. I could see myself becoming more depressed or I could see myself always conflicted with what I saw and and really kind of beat up about n- knowing deep inside that there was nothing I could do to change the culture, you know? Um, and it still weighs very heavily on me today because my truth is that I don't see things changing. And it, maybe it's because of my perspective, you know, Steve? I don't know if that answers the question. I, I kind of tend to ramble a little bit, so you kind of got to redirect me sometimes. No, man, that's, that's really... Uh really powerful thing to think about like you're you're still doing the job you've suffered trauma and it's waiting there for you every time you know every time you punch in uh yeah and you're not seeing like um like big changes you're you're just in the you're in the trenches you know that's that's brutal and suffering you know when you mentioned the word suffering i mean i'm not the only one man i mean you got to think about the kids that are growing up in these neighborhoods too you know, and Steve and Ken, you guys have been out there. So, you know, walking past a homeless person, you know, walking past a bucket of, of urine and feces or stepping over a hypodermic needle or going to bed and then waking up at one in the morning to gunshots or to a crime scene or a helicopter, that's suffering, man. And and there has to be some type of lack of developmental function during the formative years of these kids' lives because they have to live through that all the time. I, I, I'm in it for 10 hours, and then I go home. There, there are people and kids living in that shit 24 hours a day. Yeah. And if, if, I'm, if I'm dealing with, if I have some issues, imagine living in that neighborhood, man. It's super hard. It's tough. Yeah, it's hard to get out of there. And we, Ken and I worked with a woman who's an LAPD officer. Who I, won't, I won't mention her name, but we worked with her. And um, I picked her brain about that exact thing. She grew up in a very violent bad part of the city and uh, i said how did it um you know she's african-american and i'm I'm asking her like what was it like because i had a good close relationship with her she knew i was you know just genuinely didn't know i was like what was that like how did you how did you have the successful career and then now you're a cop and you know and she said uh you know her family her mom and dad really kept them close um straight home after school they weren't playing on the streets. Um, they, they kept on them. They were strict. They, as soon as they could, they got them into a better schools, even if it meant going further away from where they were. Um, yeah. but it seems like her family unit really was strong and it made all the difference for her and her siblings. They're all successful, even though mm-hmm. they grew up in this terrible place, you know? Yeah. It's a big deal, man. There's a doctor, uh, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. G- Gabor Mate. Uh, he talks a lot about how how important it is to have a good family unit. That his belief, and he's been you know a clinical psychologist for 
you know, 30, 40 years that w without that strong, strong support system, without the, the nurturing and the, of, of the family, you know, whether it be just a single mom or a single dad, but w without love, you, you're going to have a complete breakdown of, of the ability to deal with trauma and stress. You know what I mean? Um, so it's important. You have to have that strong family bond, that strong family unit. Yeah, I don't think I don't think uh, kids because you grew up grow up in a bad area uh, dictates that you're going to go down a certain path and that there's no escape from these gangs and drugs and all. I I, I highly disagree with that because I know kids that grew up in those areas um, that their their doctors and their lawyers and their police officers are very successful people. So it's not necessarily the environment. I totally agree with you guys. It's it's familial, and if you have a very strong family bond and you're loved when you're growing up, you can do amazing things into adulthood. Absolutely. Yeah, my wife is a perfect example of it. You know, she she grew up in a southeast city. She went to Jordan High School in Watts, um, went to UCLA on a ride, and now she runs a global a global foundation. You know what it's I mean? Awesome. So, yeah. And again, I genuinely believe it was because of that really strong family unit and that family support and, and having people around you that love you. They, they can help you weather the storm when the storm does come. Yeah, and kind of go uh, full circle with with uh, the kind of direction that you're going uh, in here is it's uh, Stephen, I know a guy, he's been on 15 years on LEPD, Chris. And um, he he works in Olympic division where he grew up and he also runs a, a foundation that honors fallen officers and, and does uh, charity events for fallen officers. Yeah. Uh, and he, he grew up in the, in a very, very bad area, but he grew up to give back to the community because his, he grew up in a single household, but his mother was very, very strong and loving and strong with her three boys and he's giving back today. Yeah. That's a uh, blue coat music, he's right? He's going to be on your show today. Or? No, we we actually uh I interviewed him last year actually. Oh, awesome. Did you hear about that charity ride that where that where he helped a police officer ride over 300 miles up to Newman, California? Yeah. Yeah. That was, me. I, that was you? <laughs> oh, no way. That's awesome. Dude. That was Superman stuff. I was I bought the shirt. I watched the videos. Unbelievable. And oh my gosh. What okay. an honor. Now Ken Starstruck. Well, I, I am. I am. I'm just I'm I that's an amazing feat on, on your behalf. That's Congratulations. Cool, man. Thank you. I'll I'll get a Sharpie. I'll sign your chest. There you go. <laughs> I'll run down there. We'll do that. That's a, that's that's a whole nother show on its own. But uh, yeah, that was incredible feat of of endurance and strength. That was cool, man. Thanks, man. Sorry, Steve. Again, I got getting back here. No, not just... at all, man. It's great. Hey, Steve. You know that that uh, that I don't know. If it's a profile picture. Oh, on my Facebook, where I'm standing there, kind of, and I'm wearing that shirt. That's the that's the Newman shirt. Oh, okay, awesome. What was the name of the officer? Andrew, that you were writing for? Ronnell Singh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was big. That was huge. Good yeah, good for Chris. Yeah. yeah I've known, I've known awesome, Chris. Dude. Yeah, I've known him since he was, I think, eight or nine years old. No way. 
Yeah, he was one of the he was one of Wilshire's DAPs, and then he became one of my explorers. He was one of my supervisors in the Explorer program. But I've known him since he was a small little child. That's really cool. And bef- before he learned English, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a. Uh, you should go back and listen to his interview because it it kind of dovetails right into what we were talking about about the family unit. Yeah. During the riots, he was on the roof of his building, I believe, with his mom. They were kind of watching what was going on, but his yeah. friends in the neighborhood. Uh, who were his age were running around with guns, you know. They were, that's that's how their family reacted. You know, they didn't have the the strong um, family unit like we we're saying. Yeah, yeah. And Chris could have taken that role too. He's a good guy. He's a really good dude, man. I'm glad he was on your show. I got to listen to that podcast. Yeah, he's his his story speaks exactly to what Steve Steve was asking about earlier. That's just an incredible. Uh, story of success has, and he grew up in a very bad area. I don't know if you're familiar with like Eighth uh, and Irolo, Eighth uh, and Normandy, those areas over there. Oh, that border, he used to border Rampart. Um, but he grew up right in the mix, you know. And he's he's so, but he he didn't he didn't uh, grow up there and then decide, okay, that's it, you know, I'm I'm gonna be successful. He goes back into the community and he gives back to the community that he grew up in and gives back to the officers, the organization that gives that gave him yeah. a chance, the law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a big heart, man, just like you guys, I'm sure. Yeah, he could not be, when I met him, I was like, uh, he could not be a nicer guy, too. You know, he's just like a kind guy, gentleman, it's top notch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we it's went not- to, Steve and I, I'm sorry, uh, I was going to say, Steve and I went to one of his um, charity events, one of the, the uh, where they're doing tattoos. Yeah. Uh, Inkton, Inkton Honor, I think is the name of it. That's where Steve and I, I I've known him, but Steve met him there, too, and yeah. uh, just a super cool guy, man. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you know, he and I can connect again. And I mean, we're good friends, but hopefully the next project Endure will be coming up here in about a year. We'll see what that what that's going to be, because, you know, he started the whole project Endure thing. Um, mm-hmm. The first one, Joe Cerrito ran. I think Joe Cerrito ran from Sacramento to Hollywood, right? Or from Hollywood to Sacramento. Yeah, that's uh, the one that ran in full class A. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Oof. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, we got together, we did this challenge, the, the 300 plus miles on a single speed bike. Um, and wow. then there's another one coming up, man. So we'll see what that one's going to be. It should be pretty interesting. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. I'm just, excuse me as I pause for a moment because I'm in awe. <laughs> oh. so, okay, carry on, Steve. Sorry. All right, Andrew, you want to, um, can you tell us a uh, strange or bizarre moment from your time on the job? Uh, I mean, I'm sure yeah. you got a ton of them, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, man, I'm trying to be careful. I remember driving back to the station. I was already like two hours overtime. Um, and we're right by like 70. I don't know if I could give the streets. What do you think, Ken? Can I give the streets or no? Oh yeah, no, the streets are fine. So it was a 73rd and Broadway, um, coming back to the station, and I'm on Florence and Broadway, and as I'm traveling southbound Broadway, I hear just one shot, bam. And I knew it was a gunshot, I knew it wasn't a, like a like fireworks or anything like that. And I was with my partner at the time, Nick, and, and we're kind of still debating, like, man, was that fireworks? And we just go to the station, and then we just hear the call come out, you know, shooting. One shot heard, 73rd east of Broadway. We're like, shit, we're right down the street. Let's just go back and check it out, you know. So uh, back northbound, then eastbound 7, 73 from Broadway. 
there's a couple guys out there and um, one of them's, you know, smoking a cigarette and I don't want to give the details of it, but basically he's standing outside of an apartment complex, the front door's open, kind of get this feeling that something's not right. My partner's engaging in conversation with them, you know, you know, just pretty chill, actually. No, not, nobody's nervous or anything, but I, I just kind of had this feeling. So I run up the steps and I go into the apartment and there's a lady um, laying face down covered in covered in ants covered in ants and roaches mm. and she's got a, a, a bullet a gunshot wound to the back of her like right below the bottom of her head you know in the back like right around the nape of her neck she's obviously dead you know mm. um and she's holding the phone in her hand and one of those guys that was down there that we were talking to was was the guy that had just killed her when we drove by. I mean, literally, the gunshot went off as we drove by. Um, that It's strange to me because, if I remember correctly, it was her own son, you know? Mm. So when you talk about weird stories or, or crazy things that stick with you, th that's the side of, of human beings that you don't ever want to see. But you see it, you know what I mean? And it's just it's just bizarre. Bizarre that somebody can do that. I mean, to your own relative. Wow. Andrew, what's the deal with the um, with the insects? Like, she obviously was recently dead. That quickly, they get all over a body. Yeah, I don't know what it is about about human like blood, right? But or because sometimes you see like a like a dead dog or something like that, or a cat on the street, and you don't see the ants, you know. But when you're in a crime scene. I don't know where these ants come from, man. They they get there quick though. Really? And they're just they're just you know, I'm trying to be careful cuz my wife's in the room. But I don't want to, you know, it's like there's something about human blood and the ants get to it, man, and they just start eating the body right away or or eating the blood right away. And it's kind of sad because that you know, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's daughter, somebody's mom. You know, even if it's a homeless guy who's died from, you know, you know, over an overdose or, or because of alcoholism. It's like, man, that's the human body. That's, that's something that, that God created. It's, it's just, it's soulless. It's just a shell now on the pavement or on the sidewalk. And you're just mm -hmm. watching it to preserve evidence or what have you. And it's a really, really strange feeling. Once you connect with what it is that you're doing, you're just like, what? This is really strange. This is really weird that this is, normal for us in this profession yeah I, I mean i remember seeing a lot of um different um dead people when i was working in the northeast and i had the exact same thought man when you look it's just they're so clearly their soul is gone like it, they're it's so clearly an empty vessel it's very uh i don't know if i'd ever get used to that yeah 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 i don't think anybody can i mean you have to be a special kind of person to just completely disconnect from it, you know, for anyone to say, and in the cop culture too, I mean, you guys know, guys are like, you know, there's a lot of machismo going around, you know what I mean? And you can deny it. You can say, oh, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me. Or you can, you could put on a different face, you know, in front of the guys or what have you. But when you're alone, you can't lie to yourself. And when you look in the mirror every morning, there's, there's one person that knows the truth and that's you all the time. And you know that it affects you. So you can put it aside all you want to. You can play the tough guy. You can mask it by having a couple beers. That's what I did for a long time. 
Sure. But eventually it's going to come up and it's going to bite you. You know what I mean? And for those for, for those people listening or for those people who are in our profession who are probably in the company of someone else listening to this podcast, you can deny it all you want. But you know the truth. It's going to come up and get you sooner or later. And the trick is to get in front of it. You know, Steve, to, to kind of identify identify it and, and, and start to remedy it as soon as you can before it gets out of control. Absolutely, man. I mean, when I, um, when I was, uh, became a cop in Massachusetts, they worked me for a year with the part-time training because you're allowed to do that for yeah. a year. You can be full-time with only the intermittent academy. So I really didn't know like anything really. And I was getting all on the job training, but, um, long story short, uh, a guy I had bought a sandwich from that night, um, who I knew and had a relationship with and known him for years died sweeping up shop. Um, I was the first one there. There was a, a girl from the kitchen just kind of impishly trying to do CPR on him. Medics ran through the yeah. door. Uh, he was had that just open mouth, open eyes. Like that face alone was like, whoa, I, I just wasn't ready for yeah. it. And this isn't a hot yeah. call. It's just a dead guy, you know, and um, that I, my sergeant showed up and then we, you know, the scene was busy and we were doing everything we could to help and CPR and all that. And later he was like, are you, you're right. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like trying to be tough. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, he's like, you were, um, green. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you and were there's... like the color green. I'm like, yeah, I felt a little bit woozy for a second. He's like, it's yeah. okay. That's all right. He's like, don't worry about it. He goes, no one, you know, no one really noticed. It was busy. He goes, I noticed. Cause you know, I'm, you know, yeah. kind of a trainee, but, uh, yeah, that just, that little call really rocked my world, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember one of my training officers, I, I kind of got worked up this years ago, man. It was just like 12 year old kid was shot over there. Like, um, Oof. I think he was somewhere like, uh, off like 54th around like Van Ness area. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, um, you know, just kind of watering up a little bit. You know what I mean? Sure. And my boss, my, my training officer was like, hey, man, you get makeup in your eye? <laughs> mascara in your eye? You know? Classic. Um, but, yeah, you can kind of. Uh-oh, we lost him. Oh, where'd he go? He said he left the conversation. Let me add him again. <laughs> he must have touched something by mistake. Hello? Hey, you're back. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but no, so my training officer was like, hey, man, he's like, you get, you get mascara in your eye? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my brutal. Making, you know? But no, it gets to you, Steve. You know, that's it. I mean, I think that's what we're acknowledging right now, that it, just, it gets to you. Man, I was, I mean, I was a, a town cop in a small town, and it, uh, doing 20 years at LAPD is, I mean, I can't even fathom the, the things you see daily. Uh, for it's a all, blessing, man. It really years. is. It's a, it's a blessing, man. It's a great agency, great people. I love the people that I work with. Um, you know, just like any other agency, you got knuckleheads, right? Like you got to work with some boneheads sometimes. <laughs> sure. Right. People that annoy the hell out of you, but it's 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 a great job. I, I really can't see myself, you know, I want to do other things. You know, I want to I wanna grow in life, but I'm happy, man. I'm, I, I, I like what I do. It's stressful as hell. But when I get a couple of days off and I kind of decompress, I'm ready to go right back, you know? That's great. You have, a, 
you have a good attitude about it. I mean, you know, you know what's up because you you self identify uh, things that could be problems for you. There's a lot of I, I used to tell cops all the time. Whatever you do, man, get the poison out because I don't care if you fall into a puddle in the corner and ball your eyes out. Don't self-medicate. Don't take pills. Don't do, you know, don't have affairs. Don't, you know, drink yourself to sleep to try and make that doesn't make it go away. You need to talk about it and know that that police work is stressful and it'll screw you up something awful if you don't take care of it. Yeah. Well, how do you do that then? I guess the question is, you know, because. You know, how we deal with stress is as unique as our own personality, right? I mean, our experiences to shape us and, and, and they're kind of like they lay down the groundwork for us with, with regard to how we deal with adversity and stress, you know? So it's very different for all of us. I, I've had people ask me, well, how do you do this? Or how do you deal with that? And, and a lot of times my response is, I don't know, man. Like, you got to figure it out. I hate saying this, but it's like, you got to figure it out. What, what what brings you joy? You know, what allows you to get away from work, man? Is it hiking? Is it mountain biking? Is it running? Is it reading? And you know, what 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 does that look like? I mean, you guys have been around for a long time. You know, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, you're yeah, right. You say joy. That's important because they say happiness is temporary, but joy is that underlying yeah. um, feeling of goodness. Yeah, and yeah. it is different for everybody. For you, you know. Maybe you you work out a lot and and but you got to get that energy out. But the thing is, though, is if you start exhibiting signs from your body that um, tell you that you're melting down, you're in overtime. If your body starts telling you, yeah. you know, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop right now because you didn't, then you're just you're past due. Uh, so the thing is to get ahead of it. Uh, if it takes talking, if it takes exercise, you got to get that energy out. Uh, but if, to just stuff it down or to try and do things that are fake band-aids to try and yeah. deal with the stress, you know, that's just, and it's, it's just, to just sit and identify and go, Hey, um, I saw some stuff today and it, um, kind of messed with my mind, you know, and I, but okay, never mind. Don't, don't just ignore it. It's, you know, if you, Talk to someone or just get it out or I don't care. Do something. Yeah. I, I think I think you almost have to, right? Like you have to you have to be able to say, man, I, I, I can't give this any time right now. Right? I mean you have to do that throughout the day. Right? You gotta say, I gotta disconnect from the emotion associated with this event and I can deal with it later. Right. I think that's that's how we get really good at doing that. Because when you get home, you go, man, I don't want to deal with this right now. I want to be with my family. So I'll just put this away and I'll deal with it later. And then you get up in the morning and you go, shit, man, I don't want to deal with what happened yesterday because I got to get ready to go to work. So I'll deal with it later. And then before you know it, your your bucket of deal with it later is overflowing. Mm, and yeah. by that time, it's, it's, it's too late. You know, I think that's where you're getting at. Yeah. And so when you see the kid that you're talking about, the 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 dead kid, and you just – you just act like it doesn't bother you, but yet you can still remember it. There's those those things where you go, I specifically remember this dead person. When uh, you've seen countless dead people, but when these dead people that you see, you remember them, that's something that you're you're holding on to because it's it impacted you, and you yeah. just can't let it sit there in your memory because if something, you know, you're watching a movie or something and it's something similar, and all of a sudden these feelings start creeping back. And you just shove them down. It just tells me that people don't deal with stuff. But I just, I, 
I'm a real um, proponent of doing those things that are that help you deal with it, but it's not unhealthy. You know, just talking about it, like I say, exercising, just getting it out of your system. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're becoming we're getting better at it. You know, as an organization and people like yourselves who are in the industry are getting better with the awareness component. That's a big deal. 20 years ago, you didn't have the awareness component. You know, mm-hmm. you just experienced change or things were happening to your body. Things were happening physiologically and you didn't know what it was. I think more so now there's a there's a huge movement to become or to make people more aware, like with the LAPD resilience, you know, um, you know, Instagram page where, you know, there's someone there who can listen to you or someone, you know, educating you on what, on what this is, because if you know what it is, I think you can see it coming and you go, wait a second, man, I, I got, I gotta, I gotta get this out before it goes into my, uh, don't deal with, you know, deal with a later bucket. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a more, d- more of an awareness component, a movement going on. And you deal with, uh, there's, uh, what am I trying to say? There, there is a lot more information out there, and they're dealing with it a lot more. I remember back in the '80s when going to see the psychologist was like a no-no because there was a stigma attached to saying, "Hey, I don't, I don't think my mind is really, you know, working this thing out for me." And even now today with LAPD Resiliency Program, the there's a big, a lot of articles are out today about uh, police suicides. And that's yeah. a big issue. And yeah. LEPD hit a milestone that they have gone, I want to say, I want to say it's a year, maybe longer or anything, but there hasn't been an, a, a suicide of an LEPD officer in a very, very long time. It means someone's doing something right. There's also, I saw an ad on Facebook in the LEPD groups where there is an organization comprised of retired police officers across the nation and you as a retired police officer can volunteer for this organization and uh, and you man hotlines for officers that are struggling that's awesome uh, that's pretty cool actually so yeah i mean it's much different than it was before and i don't know if we're getting off topic for you steve but this is uh, that that's a pretty cool thing that they're taking care of that no this is this is great info i'm, I'm having a good time just listening this is this is cool i did have a question for andrew um I, I kind of noticed that you you might have faith or you believe in God. I do, man. I do. I don't, you know. I do. Yes. Did, um, does that um, does that help you? Um, I think what's going to make this podcast interesting is going to be that w- w- there's going to be there's going to be conflicting um, or differences of opinion. Right. I, I, I want to talk about things that people don't normally want to talk about. So when you bring up the question of faith, I do believe in God. I do believe that there's a creator. I do believe in God. I do. But because of the things that I've seen throughout my entire life, I often ask the question, like, why? You know what I mean? Like, why? Why? Why are these things allowed to happen? Sure. Why? Why is there like constant suffering? You know what I mean? Like, why? is this stuff happening, man? And it gets me super bummed. It gets me really, really down at times because I just can't, I just can't make sense of it. I, listen, I understand that there are things that happen in life and in this universe that you're never going to understand. 
by by nature, I think it is innate in most police officers and most investigators to want to try and figure things out. That's just who we are. I mean, that's why this line of work attracts people like us, because we're constantly trying to put the puzzle together. That being said, though, I'm, oh, I'm in this constant state of trying to figure out why these things are happening, you know. So to answer your question, yes, I do. But I, I conflict a lot with it because I just can't make sense of why so many bad things happen. Sure. I understand that. That's a, that's a very good uh, take on it, too, because police officers, um, they see things that should not be happening to good people. And then you have to, it makes you wonder why. Um, it's, it's a very difficult place to be. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think the, I think the Bible promises uh, promises suffering. So it's um, unfortunately part yeah. of our life. Yeah. You know, I mean, our government promises taxes. I don't like it. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. But mm-hmm. you, you know. And just like you referenced before, it promises suffering. You don't have to like it. You just got to know that it, it it's a real thing, that mm. it's, it's be a constant. You know, how 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 you manage it with regard to, you know, how you mitigate stress is, is you know, that's that's the question I think we're getting at. I think that's what we're asking here. How do you deal with it? Yeah, I was wondering mm-hmm. if you belonged to a church or if you if that was something in your life that helped you, you know? Yeah, I'd be lying to you if I said it didn't. You know, when I was, you know, dealing with, when I was having, you know, really bad thoughts, you know, I, uh, a buddy of mine took me down to Crossroads in, in Corona. And then I have another really, really good friend that I met when I was working human trafficking. Um, she's the director of compassion at Eastside Church in Anaheim. Um, a huge church, good people. So, yeah, I mean, when you get really close to faith, things just work out. Things get better, you know, when you connect spiritually with with whatever it is that you connect with spiritually, right? Um, because I have colleagues of different faith, mm-hmm. and they identify God as a different, you know, as a different being or a different energy. But when you're close to your faith, it, I mean, things can only go right, you know. Um, but again, I, like a lot of guys and gals on the job, I mean, it's, that's something that uh, honestly a lot of a lot of people don't talk about, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. It is kind of um, fall by the wayside. I mean, Ken, you were a uh, chaplain for years, so. Yeah, I was an LAPD chaplain from, uh, geez, 85 to 90. <laughs> so I was I was just talking to officers and, and uh, conducting funerals, did a couple of marriages, stuff like that. But it's uh, there's a lot of tragedy out there within the department, too, that has to be dealt with. And that, that time, back in the 80s, it was chaplains and there wasn't really uh, any kind of a um, an infrastructure as far as mental health for the officers so it was us and you know uh there wasn't anything really so we just kind of had to deal with a lot of stuff on our own yeah, yeah. there was beer, there <laughs> yeah. Was beer. <laughs> always beer was always flowing <laughs> now but you still had a lot of guys that were working out all the time and you know, but like I said before, LAPs is is getting ahead of it. I, my hats off to them and the leadership, you know, of the LAPD because developing this mental health awareness program and, and the services and the BSS and the availability of of doctors for Hispanics it's, it's unprecedented, I mm-hmm. think, 
and mm-hmm. and in as you look at the organization and you look at organizations throughout the country, I think ourselves and NYPD, I think we're with the tip of the spear with with that because LAPD lost about eight guys in a couple months to suicide. Mm, wow, it's always a terrible thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, back to the fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, do you want to tell us um, tell us about the uh, most uh, one of the most intense or or terrifying calls you went on? Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it had to be, you know, my, the 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 first shooting that I was in, or or the second, the first shooting that I was in was was yeah, terrifying, man. Because you never think it could happen to you, you know, mm. when you're chasing the guy and he turns around, and then when you turn the corner, there's a gun pointed at you, Oof. you know, and and time freezes, it just stops. Um, and then, you know, it sounds cliche, but you do. Anybody who's ever been in that situation can tell you that you start thinking about your life and all the mistakes you made and all the good things. And and in, in that moment, before the moment you pull the trigger, for me anyway, and, and this is, you know, it's, you really start thinking about what's important in life in that split second before you, you really believe that your life is going to be taken from you. Um, it just goes into slow motion and you start thinking about everything, tactics and communications and your body positioning. And, you know, the, every breath for me, the, the breath, every breath that I took when I was running, I, I could taste the air, you know? So I, I, not only do you become hypervigilant, but you be, you, your, your senses are on They're They're hypersensitive because I could hear so clearly. I could see, so crisp i could actually taste the air we know when the gun when the gun went off and you run to the smoke you can taste it you know you can smell it and stuff and so wow it's uh yeah super it's really intense um that was the most intense moment of my life you know not only on the job but in my entire life that was really really crazy would you say it's akin to like um you ever have one of those dreams when you just can't move fast enough, like you're in slow yeah. slow motion and it's like you desperately know what you want to do, but it just feels like nothing's happening fast enough? Is that how it feels? You know, that's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, sort of, you know, but this is like for real. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, I in my mind, I, I was telling myself, you got to move out of the line of fire. You got to move out of the way faster but i just couldn't move fast enough like and my mind was telling me to do something and the the speed at which my mind was processing the information was so much faster than my decision and my reaction time you know and so there was like this a really intense anxiety and fear because i knew what i had to do my body just couldn't do it fast enough and i know you probably don't want to get too into the details but now were you fired upon as you were chasing someone is that what you're saying no the so as i turned the corner the gun was already pointed at me oh it was already up in my direction so it was just a matter of who can get the shot off first Mm. you know and so i was i was able to get the shot off first and and then we continued to run and, and then i let off a second shot and then he ended up barricading himself inside a house with a with a with a woman and um 
SWAT had to come out and get him out. But you know, no nobody died, nobody got hurt seriously. So that that was a good outcome. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's uh, that's intense, man. How'd you sleep that night? Like a baby. Like <laughs> you just probably burnt out, right? <laughs> yeah. Like running With your body on nitrous. Clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I slept good, what? man. It doesn't LAPD once you get in a shooting? Then you, it's like what eight hours later you, you when you do the walkthrough and everything. It's it's a quite a long time, right? Yeah, it depends on the crime scene. I mean, for me, I think I think my interview was about yeah about eight or nine hours later. You know, I didn't go home for like seventeen or eighteen hours after that. You know, because again, I mean. LAPD, they they do it right most of the time. They're not concerned about your feelings during this process. They're concerned about, you know, preserving evidence and collecting the facts and making sure that this shooting was done within the law. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so secondary are your feelings and how you feel about the process. Um, But first and foremost, what they want to do is make sure that they they gather the evidence and make sure that that they conduct a very a very thorough investigation. You know, all these shootings are, are handled very seriously. So it takes hours, man. And it used to be that the, uh, the the local divisional detectives would handle no hits shootings. Is that still the same? No, no. FID. Oh, that's right. Yeah. FID rolls out to all of them. Even, I think even dog shootings now, ah. you know, the, the whole team is coming out, man. You got like 20 guys with clipboards and suits <laughs> and, uh, cigars and fancy shoes going out there yeah processing crime scenes you know fid is uh force investigation division it's a it's the one that handles all the use of forces they categorize them now category one two or something like that i can't i can't think yeah yeah categorical use of force yeah they handle all the monday morning quarterbacks yeah. Hey, easy. Yeah. i don't want anybody listening to this you know? <laughs> well, i don't know what i'm talking about so yeah, just no, blame it on so. me <laughs> Dang man, that was uh, that is intense. Um, I I don't want to um, make you overshare, but do you have uh, another uh, another yarn you'd like to spin? Um, you know, I, you know, Steve, it's like I I do, but then I'm I'm nervous about you know what what it's gonna feel like. I, I'm not I'm not worried about anybody hearing it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you know the pursuit or you know the the shooting or the crime scenes and stuff. Um, but it's like, you know, it resurrects emotions and you're just like, man, I'm, I'm back there again. No, you know I, what yeah. I mean? Um, How about a positive situation like, or a positive oh, encounter? Yeah, that, yeah. There is positive stuff in police work. There There's is? a lot of Tell us about stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of positive stuff. You know, when, when you, when you, you know, I arrested a lady who was committing burglaries and she was a heroin addict and she was living in the back of a truck. You know, she was, you know, selling her body and. Yeah, it's just like as bad as it can get for a woman, you know, and and her brother was actually on the job. And and the day before I arrested her or the day that I arrested her, we talked for quite some time about her family and about how she became a heroin addict and, you know, her grandkids and, you know, prostitution and living in in the bed of a pickup truck, you know, off of Lomita Boulevard and and all those bad things. And she just she just broke down. And I got to see the real human side of her, and she got to see the human side of me as well. And and uh, you know we were able to kind of walk through this process, the adjudication process together, and 
you know, it's, it's funny how things work because, you know, I was able to go to court. I was able to meet with the DA on the case and, you know, she didn't get too harsh of a sentence and she actually begged to be incarcerated because she knew that the only way for her to get clean, you know, would, would be to do some time, you know, mm. to get her out of that environment that was, you know, you got to run away from it. You got to run, run away from evil. And I think cause she was a very spiritual person too. And, uh, and she said, I got to run away from it. I got to get away from it. And, and you're probably the only one that can help me by arresting me. You got to lock me up and get me into a program because if not, I'm just going to end up right back out here. And, um, she, when she was in custody, she met a deputy who, according to her, actually knew her brother. And he's like, I'm going to make sure that we get you into a good program and we're going to get you out of here and into a, uh, an outpatient drug treatment facility. And he did it. He did it for her. And she sends me pictures about once a year. Mm. Uh, she's got a great job. She's back with her family. She's actually engaged. I mean, she's a supervisor now at, at, at the port of LA. That's how good wow. she's doing. You know? That's awesome. But she's super, she's very, very connected to her faith. And it's something that she mentions all the time. But there's no doubt in my mind that that she's going to be more than okay, you know, um, because she's so grounded. So that's those are the good. Those are the things that make you feel good. Like in 20 years, man, if I've affected anybody, and it's her, and she's living a really good life, and she's not a heroin addict, you know, she's not she's not doing those things anymore. That's a really good feeling. That's good because that affects so many other people. You know, people that hear the story, and then you know, people who now she's she's helping, you know, get sober and clean. And and then it does a lot for the relationship between LAPD and people who are out there on the street too, you know? Absolutely, man. I, I, that's a great story to hear because, <clears throat> you know, I'm empathetic and I'm, I travel from Bakersfield to the Mexican border for my job now. And I go to bad parts of cities and I see women like that, that are just destitute and, and just in terrible shape and out there hooking. And you think like, is there any hope? Like, could th- this person possibly turn around their life? And just the just the cynic in you thinks no. You know, like, ah, oh, they're not gonna. This is it for yeah. them. This, they're they've reached the the end of the line. But hearing that story, man, that really um, that's really great. That's really uh, lifted me up. I like that. Good, good. There's a lot of good people out there. There's and there's a lot of a lot of people suffering too, man. But you know. If you find one that when you see hope, you gotta you gotta follow through. You gotta stay with them, you know. Because even if you affect one person throughout your career, man, that's good. It's one person that probably wouldn't have been touched if it wasn't for you, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a there was an officer. I almost want to say he worked Central Division, but I think every year he does like a um he puts together this thing where he he gathers maybe it's a food baskets or something like that where he uh, has a foundation or something where he helps the people so it says sometimes there's police officers you don't hear about it a lot but sometimes there's police officers that go above and beyond and they see a need in from their work and they go back to those areas and they do it's kind of like chris but uh, like Christmas time or Thanksgiving, and they'll arrange all these things. And I think uh, one of the famous guys on Skid Row is Dion Joseph, uh, yeah. who's a senior lead officer. These guys, it's like, you know, uh, Andrew took 
took it another level. He didn't just go, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, um, don't come back here and um, and then just forget about this person. You know, you take the time, and it's not that's part of the job that people don't see the hum the human face of the job where police officers actually go out of their way. Where you see this, there's uh, articles about uh, shop with a cop. Uh, all over the country where police officers get donations and things. And then they take these underprivileged little kids to Christmas shopping at these big stores and everybody, it's a big project, but uh, a lot of people don't see that, that, that humanity beside behind the badge, Andrew, where you took the extra time to work with this person. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, shop with the cop, coffee with the cop and, and those things. And I did that stuff for a number of years too. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. They don't. I, I don't think they work for. I don't think they work because, and I think it's it's because of the line of work that I'm in. You know, specifically with gangs and stuff. But oh yeah. You you know, you know what works, and I and I tell my wife this whole time. It's it's when you have a conversation for 20 minutes or 30 minutes with the lady who owns you know the the you know the liquor store on the corner, or or the victim who was just shot at, or the victim you know who was just robbed and. Or, you know, when somebody says, hey, man, can you talk to my son? Or, you know, when you, when you, you know, I, I took one of my victims out to Ross and bought him, a, you know, clothes for court, you know, and this, you know, this kid didn't have two pennies to rub together. Stuff mm -hmm. that no one sees, no one hears about. That's what makes a huge difference, man, to be honest with you. Because most of the time, things like coffee with the cop and shop, that, that shit's all for photo shoots, you know. Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's all the dog and pony show and those relationships and those interactions are very superficial and it's insulting to the community because they know that they know that it, this is nothing more than just a superficial photo op. And, and I've had people tell me they take offense to it. I've had people tell me to my face, I'm not going to your coffee with a cop. What I want from you is to be present when I call you. What I want from the police is when somebody's crying, for you to put their arm around them or for you to touch their shoulder and for you to say, don't worry about it. We're going to do the best we can and make sure that we do the right thing. They don't want political answers because they hear it all the time. You know, they hear it on, they see it on TV all the time. They, they don't want to be lied to. And I think a lot of times, you know, we insult people's intelligence. You know, what, what the community wants, what they told me is that when I call you, man, I want you to be here. I want to see you patrolling up and down the street. I want you to get out the car and I want you to, to talk to the kids out here in the street. And I don't want there to be cameras around, you know, I want, I want you to see the human side of us. And I want these kids to see the human side of you. And, and the beautiful things happen and the magic happens when nobody's looking, you know, when the cameras are off and, and, and there's no one around to document that that's, you know, just getting out the car and playing basketball with the kid. I used to do that all the time by, by Wilmington middle school. You know, two or three times a week, I'd get out and play, and play horse with a kid for 20 minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the, the coffee with a cop thing, but the shop with a cop, I think that, that's a big deal to a lot of the kids. And it just makes brings a big smile to their face that they, you know, the cops go and do this thing with them and then they see them in a different in a different way where the, the cops yeah. are, are, are good people. They're good guys. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot bring, of the I want to bring out like wrestling with a cop. <laughs> wrestling with a cop she go or box get... with a cop box with a cop where <laughs> that would be that would be something else i don't man. think that'll go too <laughs> no but hey you know it'd be fun it'd be fun yeah. for us 
Yeah. Colts Law Wrestling with the Cop. <laughs> I'm sorry. People, you know, it's funny. Hey, pol- police officers have a different sense of humor, folks. Just take it like it is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I got on a rat there for a second, man. I'm sorry. No, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate all everything you have to say about um about what's going on out there. The um do you have like one question that we get a lot um is we get a lot of young people listen uh, that are in the academy or they're about to go or they're they're on the fence um about being a police officer and they love this question and it's um advice to new police officers or people thinking about it. Do you have any um any advice for them? Yeah. I, I would say that uh, before you before you even think about coming on the job, you gotta you gotta you, you gotta make sure that you have really good support. You know, you can't. You have to know yourself and and know who you are as a person and understand that this is not going to be an easy easy road. I people ask me, Steve and Ken, and, and I tell them. Lately, as of late, I tell me this is not something you want to do, mm. you know, unless you absolutely have to or unless this is, you know, your absolute passion. Um, there are, especially with the way the economy is now, the economy is so good. There are so many things that you can do, you know, become an entrepreneur or serve your community in a different way. But if it is your calling, you know, make sure that you're grounded uh, spiritually. Make sure you're grounded with your family. Make sure that you have a good support system. And make sure that you have a way of disconnecting every day, you know, whether it be hiking or, or taking a walk on the beach or exercising or joining a running club or a cycling club or or something like that. Or just make sure that you get away and you have fellowship for, you know, once a week or something like that. You, you have to. You, you have to find a way to de- decompress and disconnect from the reality that is police work. Because w- when the reality hits you and you realize that it's starting to affect you. It like you mentioned earlier, it's too late by the at that point. You know, when you, when you start to feel the effects of it, it's too late. You got to get ahead of it. So, get ahead of it and get a good support system, and and learn how to disconnect from the job. That's my advice. Awesome. And the other thing I want to ask you about is um, Battle Cry Gear. This is your side hustle, right? <laughs> yeah, my side, side hustle. Yeah. So we we created Battle Cry Gear um, because. So again, what as I mentioned, you know, my wife, she's in the, in the nonprofit world. She runs a global nonprofit, and she's very versed in that. And I wanted to uh, find a way to contribute to nonprofits, and so a percentage of all of our sales goes to fund nonprofits. And so, up until January first, is going to be pediatric cancer research. Um, every ninety days, we'll change the nonprofit, um, and the the the. The EDC bag, the war bag, is a bag that I created. Yeah, I was checking that out, man. Tell me, tell me about that bag. Things badass. So it's um, it, you know, for police, you know, a lot of times we get the gear that's sufficient to us, and it it's it breaks, you know, in, in just a couple of years. So we created uh, an EDC bag made of constructed of one thousand denier cord or nylon. It's uh, YKK zippers, you know, five fifty cord. It's in terms of, um, you know, the, the materials is it's some of the best that you can get, and it's going to last forever. And it's it it houses everything you need to house for daily patrol. Um, and so you can get rid of the you know the overseas made stuff, 
you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, it's American made, made by American workers. And um, it's made by first responders for first responders. So everything that you need for a daily carry bag on duty, there it is. And it, the nice thing is that I wanted to create a versatile piece that not only could be used on duty, but off duty as well. So if you're going on a three-day trip, you know, the bag houses, you know, everything that you need for a three-day trip. Uh, we designed this so that it fits in overhead compartments on planes, underneath the seat on planes, it fits in the TSA cage. Um, it's just a very versatile piece. It's very well made. It's beautiful. And it it helps fund nonprofits. And that's what we're about. That's awesome, man. That's very cool. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, cool bag. It's, your site is um, battlecrygear.com, correct? Yeah, yeah. We're still a, a, a fledgling. We're still, we're, we're getting it going. Um, my, um, you know, my wife has another project going on with with other business and stuff. And so, you know, being a full-time police officer and, and trying to manage that, it's, it's a task. But we're moving along, we're progressing, and we're happy with, with the rate at which we're progressing. That's great, man. Maybe you can, as you, um, you know, reduction in police work happens, that will grow. And that can that could be your after-work thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Or maybe podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Podcast. How did you come up with the logo for Battle Cry? Again, my wife. You know, she's a talented lady. I'm grasping here. She was. Um, lady. She played a big part in uh, getting Skype going for you today. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah. She wrestled for the WWE, WWF. Uh, come on. In addition, the fabulous Moolah. I don't know if you remember her. <laughs> fabulous Moolah. Really? And I That's think awesome. She's listening now. Yeah. Yes. She's listening to the podcast right now as we speak. So, uh, well done, well done. I like the I like the cap. The cap yeah, yeah, really yeah. Cool. You know what, Steve and Ken, I'll, I'll get you guys one. I, you know, as soon as I get back to LA, I'll uh, I'll send one out to you guys for sure, man. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, I like cool. that. Um, I like that blue yeah. symbol there. That's that's cool. Yeah, I'll make sure you guys get one. You just just shoot me a text or shoot me a DM. What what color you want? I'll make sure I get it to you. Oh, thanks. We'll man. have Steve's people contact your people. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, We'll Dude. all get together in that. Yeah, that's cool, man. I, I, I like this gear. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for the plug. I appreciate it. Of course, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, Andrew. You, this was a great interview. And, um, man, I really feel like we got to see um, inside the mind of, a, of a, you know, an officer that works gangs. It was really enlightening to me. I appreciate it. I, and, and, again, man, I tend to ramble sometimes. I just appreciate the opportunity to, to kind of get some stuff out. I hope, you know, I articulated things the right way and I wasn't too offensive. Um, but I hope that it was engaging as well. You know, I, I know that this is the very beginning of a very, very long career in in these types of podcasts for you guys. And I wish you guys nothing but the best, you know. And, and I'm really honored and flattered that you would invite me to come on. Oh, thank you, sir. And again, thank you for coming on. And uh, please be safe out there and we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch. I will. Yeah. I will. I Much appreciate it, brother. That we can all get together and, and do some practicing on that coastal wrestling soon. Absolutely, <laughs> wrestling. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, this is a good time, man. We had a really, a really great time. It was good to uh, to catch up with someone that was on the LAPD and just get some of those old streets that I remember back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's good that we interview someone like you because someone like me, I can't remember. I can't remember going back that far, but uh, it's good, man. It made me feel good. Thanks again. I, I appreciate it, guys, man. Blessings to you guys, and, and I really hope that we could talk to you soon, maybe have a reu reunion over lunch or dinner or something. Absolutely. That sounds great. All right, man. All right, brother. Take care.
You be safe. You too. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Ken. Thanks. Thanks, bud.